Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And today we are joined by two very special lads. Um, We have Anthony Oliveira. Hello. Who is, of course, an official Scooby and who filled in for me when I was sick. And I want to say thank you publicly on the air. <laughs> I'm I'm so glad you're better, but I wish you had been sicker longer so I could have just <laughs> gradually stolen this out from under you. <laughs> there are television shows where they replace characters. So maybe one day you'll just oh, like gradually. Slowly single white female you. Yeah, that'll be fun. <laughs> Welcome back. We're all glad you're better. Uh, thank you. And of course, we have the lovely, uh, I forgot your last name, Chris. <laughs> that is so offensive. It's okay. I have, I have over the course of knowing you had two of them. So uh, Christopher Downs. That's right. I, I also, have... because I wanted to say Chrisopotamia, because that's how I know you. <laughs> He's in my phone as Christopher Australia. So if that makes that, it feel any better. Well, that's just like how there's a whole bunch of people in my, in my phone whose last name is just Scruff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always have people, like, as their, like, Twitter handle, and, like, Liza Sokol, who's been on the podcast, who's, like, one of my really good friends, I still have her in as Liza, and then her, like, Twitter handle, that was her old Twitter handle, so it's not even, like, remotely relevant. But yeah, and today, Christopher becomes an official Scooby, which is wonderful. Yay! Very exciting. Naps. Um, Yay! <laughs> I get a jacket and an upgrade, and I get a private suite somewhere, and other things. This is what I've been told. Yeah, yeah, something like that, right, Anthony? That's what you get. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah, I am currently fanning myself with the official Scooby fan. <laughs> uh, there's so much merch. You're gonna, you're gonna be overwhelmed. <laughs> me drowning in it. <laughs> private suites with me. Yay! <laughs> I'm in the private suite. I'm in yours, um, Anthony. <laughs> all, all Scoobies get a one night vacation with me. <laughs> And then we get put into your phone as our name Scruff. <laughs> well, I get to, I actually, when you become a Scooby, I learn your last name. So Ooh. now I'll know it. <laughs> you know, at, Matthew, as you were introducing Christopher, I was like, oh shit, I don't know that Matthew knows his last name is what I actually thought yeah. of. But well, we were prepared. Podcast co host. You're so welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, today we're here to discuss. Let's talk about the Yoko Factor. Yeah, they're kind of. Part one of the part two of the kind of season finale, but not quite season finale. The 20th episode of yeah. season four. It's so... rubbish. <laughs> oh, I'm it's not fan. rubbish. I like it a lot. I'm a big fan of this episode. I'm a big fan of this two-parter and the like experiment of this two-parter as like a, first of all, as like a not like cohesive two-parter but also is like a two-parter that ends with this sort of long coda of restless like i the more i think about this season the more i'm liking it so so i'm happy to take the pro stance today (laughs) anthony you were just complaining about season four with me i was not complaining about season four i was just the arc of season four has its hiccups but i like the way this episode sort of tries to confront those hiccups and then tries to sort of create some kind of synthesis out of them okay um so I guess we'll get there. But I do, I do, the more I think about season four as a unit, the more I like it. And I think the piece that made it make sense to me is buried in this episode. So, hmm. <laughs> well, let's talk, let's talk about, um, I mean, we don't have to talk about the very beginning where Colonel McNamara is talking about the initiative and, and Riley and all that, but we can actually, cause that's not as important, but let's talk about Spike and Adam and how they kind of pair and how the show chooses to kind of pair them off in these final episodes. 
So, it, Colonel McNamara is weird because I looked him up and I was like, is this the same guy from New Moon Rising? Because it is. And it's weird that he's kind of yeah. the head of the initiative for three episodes and he's not a character that even registers to me. Um, <laughs> I, I think, well, Colonel McNamara is important because I think that he really... Like, if Maggie Walsh is, like, shadowy organization government evil, Colonel McNamara is that minus knowledge because, like, Maggie right. Walsh is actually, like, a professor who's really smart and was knew what she was doing. And, like, you could respect her as a villain because she was super smart. Colonel McNamara is just, like, the military guy who gets sent in and he knows – and he's kind of in over his head and he ref- – but as a toxic man, like, he refuses <laughs> to admit what he doesn't know. And so he makes like an interesting final step for the initiative because now it's like not only is there no one with actual smarts like running the show, it's just all become like it's over. It's now hyper militarized as opposed to like a Ph.D. person running the show. Right. Right. And he's also I mean, he's like a complete factotum. Like he 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 is the thing that Riley would have grown up to be had Buffy not interceded in his life, right? Like, yeah. he's just sort of this, the older version of this odd, like, the initiative as a project is full of very young people, which is very strange. Um, and then, mostly because they're trying to blend in, I guess. But he's what they would be in 20 years, right? Right. I love, yeah. and his arc is to sort of tell that sort of narrative of idiocy, as we see in part two, <laughs> where Buffy has to explain even basic things about his own job to him, which is great. Um, but also, I wanted to point out that in the last time on Buffy, they show, you know, they kind of show you, they do a good job of showing, like, the Scoobies being, like, separate and, like, having their own shit. Um, but then they, there's also, like, a weird Giles goes and Angel, and they show you <laughs> the scene from Buffy and Angel's fight, which I do always think of as such a big deal and it's like some of my favorite episodes of Angel season one, which is for the most part not great. Um, when she goes to see him and Faith's there and she wants to like attack Faith and he's like, no, like get away from her. And they end up hitting each other. And it is mm-hmm. such a big deal. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Savage Geller, I think, is a great actor. And the look on her face when Angel hits her is like truly heartbreaking. Yeah. Really quick question, though. Um, yes. What was the circumstance of Faith? being there with angel because the way they so i will say this watching the previously previously on buffy the vampire slayer watching that like (laughs) they make it seem like buffy walks in on angel and faith about to hook up well that's what it's supposed to look like like in the context of angel buffy literally walks into that but what you like the viewers have seen is faith is recovering like the prior episode she had captured wesley she had like beat up cordelia um and her and Angel had this big knockdown fight where she wants Angel to kill her. And the end is like one of Eliza Dushtrew's best scenes in the Buffy verse where she's like crying and wants Angel to kill her because she knows she's bad. And so the next episode is kind of her in his apartment post nervous breakdown, like recovering. And her and Angel always have like this weird chemistry, but it literally is just like he's touching her shoulders, giving her a pep talk. And they're, like, right. standing at the foot of his bed, and that's when Buffy walks in. Like, nothing's happening other than, like, she's freaking out, and he's holding her shoulders, and they're talking. Right. Uh, but, okay. but Buffy is also still processing the fact that Faith, last time she w- interacted with Faith, Faith slept with Riley, right? So it, yeah. to her, it's, like, again, more of this single white female stuff where... Um, 
Faith is again stealing her man. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it is strange how in a weird way, part of the core of season four of Buffy lives in that episode of Angel in a strange way because yes. so much of the episode, so much of this season is about learning that um, the world is not black and white, that there is bleed through for there are good demons, there are bad people, right? And like Buffy goes to LA to be told to her face the lesson she has to learn in season four, which is that. Um, uh, you you need to be careful about how judgmental you are, right? Like, that's Buffy's sort of thing she's dealing with. Even with the Willow thing, the way the Willow thing is being coded in the back end of the season, the poor way that Riley handles Oz's werewolfism, um, it weirdly gets discussed explicitly on Angel, and then we're importing that into... The episode doesn't really talk about Faith very much when Buffy comes back, but it is that is what she's thinking about when yeah. she's dealing with Riley in that fight that they have in this episode, even though he thinks that she slept with Angel. We're jumping ahead, but... Yeah, we are, but because, uh, and I want to, so I want to put a pin in that conversation to go back to Spike and Adam, but I, when we get back to it, I also want to bring up how, because Buffy does put its head in the sand about things that happen on Angel, and it's interesting that the larger lesson of this season happens on Angel, because when Angel does enter this universe, it kind of becomes a dumber storyline about Angel v. Riley. That's a very mm. dumb story that as opposed to like the good <laughs> things that you could be doing with the characters that they do on Angel. Yeah. Agreed. But Spike and Adam. Yes. Spike and Adam. Um, so, and I feel like they have a, the show has like a little bit of a spike problem, especially at this point um, where they don't seem to know what to do with Spike. And I don't even think it's like season four's problem because it bleeds into season five um, where, like, Spike is constantly helping them and then deciding again that he hates them. And for me, I don't understand why they do that. Well, like, for, for me, and, and it's interesting with what Anthony was just talking about with, like, Shades of Grey, and that I think the, the character of Spike kind of shows how much gray area the show is willing to go into. Because to me, Spike is operating as a freelance, almost like a freelancer. And when you're a freelancer, <laughs> when you're an independent agent, like you, the person at the end of the day that you have to look out for is yourself. Yeah. And in, and uh, Spike is acting in a way that like he will, he's willing to team up with whoever he thinks will get him. It's like, you know, you always want to hitch your wagon to who you think is going to win. <laughs> right. And I think Spike is just willing to work with whoever he thinks is going to A, win and B, get the chip out of his head. Like, Which is how he's Adam friends, explains He's friends with the Scoobies. When the Scoobies have ties to the initiative, he's friends with them. And when that falls apart, he's like, oh, there's nothing left for me here. I need to team up with Adam because Adam has the smarts to do this. Right. And Adam says so, right? Like, when Spike is explaining the danger of Buffy, Adam says, well, it sounds like you should be working with her, right? And it's like a serious, like, you should just pick who you think is going to win this confrontation. I think that... um I think that one of the things we've been talking about is sort of the buckling that happens in this season after Lindsay Krause's departure as Maggie Walsh. Um, and Buffy has a really simple formula for its big bads. There's a big bad and then there's like a sniveling henchman to whom they talk, right? Like you have the mayor and um, whatever his assistant's name was and then Mr. Trick and then Faith. You have Glory and her little toadies. Like the big bad needs someone to rant to. And it seems like Adam and Maggie were going to be that. And without her, Adam needs someone to do his bidding and to explain his plan to. <laughs> so Spike falls into that role pretty um, like quickly in the back end of season four. But they also want to keep him doing the Cordelia stuff, right? Because yeah. they 
they can't quite go there with Anya yet because she has to be doting and she's locked in the Xander plot. Um, so I want to go off of what you were saying because, okay, has anyone here been watching Wild Wild Country on Netflix? No, I don't know. No. What I haven't heard of Oh, that. my God. So I'm only going to reference that for the next two episodes. <laughs> so you just need to know that. Um, it's an amazing six-part docuseries um, that that is about... Um, it's about an ashram that opened in Oregon in the 1980s and the Rajneeshis, which were the name of the like religious sect that lived there. And, and they got into conflict with the local Oregon with, with the local Oregonians. And it gets very sinister to the point that there's like attempted murder plots and poisoning and all this stuff. Um, but the whole point of it is that there's like the person at the head who's the Bhagwan. And then there's his second in command, Ma Nan Sheila, who's like the muscle who gets things done, who is like, so there's the visionary and then there's the person oh. who actually gets things done. And I think that that's kind of what you're talking about too. And that I think that's one of the reasons that people have problems maybe responding to Adam is that I think that Adam was maybe envisioned to be like the muscle. And then he has to kind of, because yeah. over right. these two episodes, honestly, and this is because I've been watching wild, wild country and I'm seeing everything <laughs> as cultish, but like, this he's building what is essentially like a religious cult with him as the figurehead yeah, in a lot of yeah. ways. Like he's well, talking a lot of like new race stuff and like, you know, a perfect man and, and all this stuff. And these are all things that a lot of like, you know, off religious yeah. icons will talk about. And so, but it is kind of weird for him to be in that place of figurehead. Cause he's not a charismatic leader. Right. Who, you know, <laughs> that is although kind of Walsh. This first ep- this first scene with Adam and Spike has one of my favorite jokes. I think I talked about it last time. Yeah. Where Spike is talking to him and he says, wow. Like, he Adam has that speech about Spike being like a caged animal. And he's like, you're exactly like to- to- uh, Tony Robbins, except you're yeah. not a weird friend. And then he's like, oh, Tony Robbins is a weird Frankenstein. So you're exactly <laughs> like Tony Robbins. <laughs> I always thought it was a joke about he doesn't want to insult Adam, but it's literally a joke on Tony Robbins, <laughs> which I didn't realize uh, until yeah. I saw what he looks like. But actually, this episode has the key piece that I was talking about. I guess we're jumping ahead, but now that you're talking about cults, um, at the end of the episode, Spike has the speech about Yoko, and then he checks with Adam to see if he knows who the Beatles are. And Adam says, I like Helter Skelter. And then I was like, oh, now I get it. He's supposed to be Charles Manson. This is supposed to be about the family. Um, and then I was like digging through all this stuff, and it's like amazing how one to one it is. So Helter Skelter uh, for Charles Ma- Charles Manson became obsessed with the White Album, um, mm-hmm. and he believed it was like the Beatles were prophets who were telling him the secret of the apocalypse. That they were warning him about. They were telling him how the events of what the fam- the cult of the Manson family's cult believed there was going to be a- an event called Helter Skelter, and it is amazing how much it maps onto. Adam's plot. They believe they were going to go down into this underground bunker uh, and they were going to survive this grand race war and then they would emerge from their bunker and then from the they called it the bottomless pit uh, and then they would be the last white people alive after they triggered this great war. So it's like now I get it. I too watched American Horror Story. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't remember what the fucking name of that season. Is it election? Yeah. Cult. 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 That's what it was. Right. Um, yeah, they like American Horror Story Democracy. <laughs> <laughs> they have like the the last season was garbage. I recapped it for Geeks Out, and it was like very painful. Well, actually, you liked it, Christopher, didn't you? I did. That's okay. Yeah. No, that's okay. I like a deferring opinion. It's it, about Charles Manson. It was about. 
Chris, it, it was you liked it, so you explain it better because I'll have a. It was, I look. This is getting way <laughs> off topic, but it was about cults, and I think the election stuff was shoehorned in at the last minute to make it quote unquote relevant. But oh. um, it was about a cult, but all through they kept referencing um, earlier cults and actually reenacting half of them. Um, and yeah, there were the the Manson was uh, was part of it. The Just retelling was to watch. Yeah, and they use the same actors as they always do. Um, but yeah, they they uh, throughout the series, throughout the the season, they reenacted these these famous cults from history, mostly American history uh, and twentieth century American history at that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so the, the Manson, after it's like, yeah, okay, sorry. no, continue. No, continue. <laughs> I don't need to talk more about American Horror Story. <laughs> yeah, we don't. This that's a different podcast. Um, but Xander. So I mean, the next scene after Adam and. Riley uh, is, I mean, sorry, I keep mixing up. After Adam and uh, Spike is Xander and Riley, where he kind of brings Riley some clothes and then they talk about Angel. Uh, Because it's another one of those things where Buffy has filled in Riley about her past life, but has left some parts <laughs> out. I genuinely which quite a few times. I genuinely feel like this is one of those things that, like, it isn't Xander's fault. Um, like, I don't know why Buffy wouldn't say, like, especially with this, like, be like, "Hey, Xander, just so you know, don't bring up Angel." Maybe even to be fair, like to her, like maybe she's like, "I'll tell him later, just not now." Like, you know, maybe prep your friends on what you're telling your significant other or whatever but well, also your ex? Talk- yeah they also haven't been talking which is like kind of the big yeah big yeah thing. but, but it- also but the other thing is that like i think one of the things so I, I it's i'm not mad at xander in this instance for what he said to riley i think right. that he deliberately miscast or deliberately miss you know conveyed how the mm. curse works and I actually think if we go back to it, Buffy was never really explicit because, like, they he makes it seem as if it's just like any old quickie with Buffy would be the 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 thing that would turn Angel. Right. And I don't think yeah. that it's that like just entering Buffy is what makes him the happiest. Like, I think it was specifically that moment of like finally being with the person you love. But did the like, show itself even know it at that point? Had they explored it that far? Because it wasn't until the next season of Angel when he yeah. sleeps with Dala. Right. Um, and so I think they like, didn't decide. I think the yeah. show is still negotiating that because it it also Angel has those running jokes about like, is he a eunuch or not? And it's like it's yeah. not until it's not until he has the misery of Darla that he realizes sex has nothing to do with the moment of happiness, right? Yeah. Right. And so the show hasn't so when when Xander, so what you have is two not very bright guys kind of discussing <laughs> this ancient curse and don't and not understanding the nuances of it. And to, and the way Xander says it to Riley and the way Riley takes it is like, oh, like just having sex with Buffy sets him off. And I think that that is most threatening to Riley because at this point, he and Buffy have a mainly very sexual relationship like we just mm-hmm. had. Where the wild think, things are and all this stuff. And it's like, for him, I think that sexuality is so important to their relationship that he takes it in such a way that is not really what the curse was about. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also evidence of two drafts here because Xander says, um, and guess what makes him happiness? I'll give you a hand, it's not creme brulee. And Which that is hugely offensive says, to creme brulee, by the way. 
I'm so mad at that. Line. If there was an ancient curse, creme brulee would be what would make you happy. Yeah. Don't give Chris. If you're like a gremlin, but with creme brulee. And I'll like, tell you, I'll uh, let you in on the secret. I'd be evil constantly because that would yeah. not stop having creme brulee. No. <laughs> Chris no. is evil again. Who let him go to a French restaurant? <laughs> like a passion fruit creme brulee. Oh God, I love it. Um, but that means he thinks he's telling him information he doesn't know, and then it gets played later as though Xander said it by accident. And it's like both those things are somehow existing at the same time in this exchange in a weird way. Um, but yeah, like the, the script doesn't want to hold Xander responsible for it. But it is, again, Xander poisoning someone against... He did this when he teamed up with Faith to kill Angel too, right? Like right. he just poisons yes, people against. Yeah. And it's yeah. sort of it's admirable how remarkably consistent it is for that character. They always like he has the real blind spot for Angel and cannot help himself whenever he comes up. Uh, Xander is uh, fractious and mean. Yes. Right. Even though now it's like he's helping Buffy's current boyfriend. So it's not right. like that's why he hates Angel is like because Angel got the girl when Xander mm-hmm. wanted her. And mm-hmm. yet it's like consistently he has a problem with him. There's been a couple of times when she said she talked to Riley about her past. And what the fuck did she tell him? Like, if it feels weird, like when Riley's like, oh, she told me he turned evil. She cured him. But like, what th- doesn't she I say? I mean, she t- you don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm I, I can imagine that she just said he turned evil and was triggered and just left out like, oh, it was, it was this, it was you know this ass that did it. Like, right, and I and I, I can totally. <laughs> but she recounts that herself. She tells someone else. I told him that we were together, and then he went bad. Like that's, and I I, I figured that's pretty much exactly what she told Riley. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if it were me, I'd be like, but how? Tell me how. What are the details? Mm-hmm. You're leaving something out, aren't you? Um, because I'm a lunatic, (laughs) but I would be right clearly because she is leaving something out. But Riley is not a smart man. (laughs) And he's also told not to question things. Ooh, Christopher, did you hear Anthony call me smart? (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. I actually think he's at his most charming in this episode. Like, I really like the way he's written here. Like, that scene where he's like, I'm not leaving this room. And he's just sort of left in the room. He's like, not leaving. Like, I think think actually this is a really good two-parter for Riley. And we can get to that, like, over time. I would agree with that. Um, But so... So... I don't know. I, I I guess you're all right. I mean, I, I don't get mad at Xander just because I do feel like Buffy should have fucking told her boyfriend. But, yeah. I mean, Xander is consistently, like, kind of jealous of, like, quote-unquote, his women. Like, he wants... Well, I, I will also say that we also know that Buffy is is trying to negotiate... Okay, and I'm trying to... I'm going to make a... But, like, she's trying to negotiate dating if you will a bigot and that she dated the kind of thing that her boyfriend is bigoted against right right yeah right which is her word for it right she calls him a bigot right so she's she's like how do i tell my current boyfriend who is bigoted against a certain type of person all about my relationship and about the sexual nature of that relationship it's like she i think she has a a very it's a it's a a very hard road to hoe you know That Um, is a phrase. Is it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I'm like Giles when he's drunk, laughing at Fort Dix, um, which we'll get to later. Uh, So I do like that we get Giles singing again. I feel like they were just like, hey, do you want to sing again? And he was like, yes, I would love to. Singing Freebird, which is a song about leaving. And I was thinking about like how much his song in the musical is referencing Freebird now that I think about it. Like, hmm. 
it's it's like you could i don't know much about musical theory but what's his song not wish i could stay the other one um uh, standing in the way like yeah standing in the way sounds like a skinnerd song now that i think about it like this acoustic Freebird thing that he sings here and he's like super hot he's wearing his earring and then we, it all gets deflated when he gasps because spike is in the room <laughs> and it's such a good gas it's real it's high pitch it's, yeah. a bit of falsetto. <laughs> it's like comically the... it's high it's a high point for uh tony head yeah, <laughs> yeah this whole episode is really he, he plays drunk very well yeah. yes he does oh he really does <laughs> i feel like because amy poehler is my favorite playing drunk actor um but he's like Pretty, pretty up there because he's pretty good at it too. <laughs> Spike starts his whole shtick of telling Giles that Buffy doesn't respect him anymore. And you know, I have to say, it makes me mad when Spike does this. Not because I think it's poorly written. Like, I do actually think it completely 100% makes sense, especially within the context of this specific season. But it just makes me mad because I'm like, stop, my babies. I want them all to be happy. <laughs> what are you doing, you dickhead? <laughs> Like he's and like, he starts drinking in this scene, which I thought was really cute. Like yeah. he just sort of gradually reaches for the, it's like that Marge Simpson thing. That he gra- <laughs> gradually reaches for the bottle. It's like dun dun. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, then we get uh because I do like I think James Marsder actually does really good Spike does really good acting as Spike acting. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, like yeah. He, I think he does a really good job of he slightly changes the way Spike's speaking when he's acting to the Scoobies when he's lying to them. You know, it's still I still buy that they buy his lies, but it's still like just a slight change in how he's handling right. Spike is I don't know, it's pretty convincing that he's doing an well, act he's, or whatever. He's been training all season by watching Passions. <laughs> so now now he knows how to work a good ski, soap opera scheme. <laughs> <laughs> so then we meet Miss Kitty Fantastico. Um we do we get uh which is introduced last episode right yeah like that's one of tara's and like that episode set up the i didn't remember this but that episode opens with the question are you a cat person or a dog person and willow says i think i'm mostly a dog person which is like maps onto oz yeah so like the cat becomes this like icon of her lesbianism in a weird way <laughs> like she's chosen now that she is a cat person <laughs> um so having and it is it is the cutest cat i've ever seen in the world it's it a very cute cat socks. Yeah, I'm allergic to cats. Even I was like, oh, what a baby. <laughs> I don't that, love. Do you guys notice that Willow says she wants to take that? Maybe she'll take drama. But like, even that's in her dream that she's afraid of taking like a drama class. So it's weird. Yeah, that's she, her biggest fear. Yeah. Well, I think that's why she dreams about it, because she's th- probably like thinking about taking drama. Yeah. I think that's the whole. It's just weird that she her. brings it up without bringing up the fact that that's like her biggest fear being on mm. stage um well they're thinking i mean they're thinking about it right so yeah. like it's it's put here so that when it comes up in the dream and that's a thing people do like nick actually what's his name um nicholas brendan started acting to get over his stutter so it's like right, people yeah. do <laughs> people do i that, also I think guess. that like a college drama class will you'll never actually like be on stage you'll be like moving like practicing right. movement the whole semester right <laughs> like, <laughs> right um I mean, yeah, sure. Um, so the, then we have the scene with, between Riley and Buffy where again, he comes to visit her in the clown pants. Very funny, very funny Riley scene. He has a lot of good jokes about the pants. Like he has to recharge them every two hours. And I, I think it's, that was a good joke. It's like really <laughs> charming because he's making the jokes because he knows that there's like this tension going on. 
And Buffy... well, what they are actually is very deflating, kind of pathetic jokes. Like Riley is really <laughs> down on himself in this. Like he feels. Because really what's going on is that he feels like he's losing Buffy, even yes. though that's ridiculous because he's not. And he's just overreacting to everything. <laughs> yeah. So he has he puts this fake distance between them that doesn't really have to be there. It's funny because I was actually making I was making notes as I was watching the episode. And at the beginning of this scene, I had written down, what is up with this fucked dialogue? Because it seems so uncharacteristically bad. And then by the end of the scene, I crossed it out and written, actually, no, it's perfect for <laughs> a couple who are... Have, who have some weird distance between them, whether or not it's legitimate distance, like is actually perfect um, for them, that, that awkwardness, well, considering how right Well, I think you say that feeling. there's like 20% legitimate distance, but that the legitimate distance is just the newness of a relationship and like trying to negotiate how much do I tell my partner. Yeah. And then 80% of it is, oh, Riley has constructed a complete false narrative inside his head <laughs> yeah. that has no tenor hooks to reality. Yeah, and I think the dialogue reflected that really well. Yes. Yeah. Despite initially going, oh, what? This is such short sentences. Where's the wit? <laughs> oh, I, I like it a lot. <laughs> no, but the interview, also, I was like, oh, it makes sense. The pants are also really well cast. I can believe that Xander owns those pants, but I can also see how they're the most ridiculous pair of pants I've ever seen. Xander owned those pants that he would drown in them because they're huge on Riley, and I think of Riley as being a bit broader <laughs> than Xander. That's true. Although Xander does change sizes quite a bit. Yes. So. <laughs> I think four and five is peak thick hot Xander. Mm-hmm. Um, Xander's wardrobe and his general demeanor in four is what to me when he's hottest. Yeah. Is this like the there's a Sean there's a Sean Cody aspect to him in season two <laughs> and three when he's in high school. Yeah. But mm-hmm. now it's like a definite like um like a, just like a better a, a better aesthetic. It's a little bit rich, uh, piling on too thick on those pants when Buffy is wearing that giant turtleneck Turtle cable neck sweater. Oh. Okay, yeah. the that sweater's iconic. Um, <laughs> fuck you. When she puts that dusty bricks uh, jacket on top of that cream oh, sweater, <laughs> it is <laughs> the bedazzled like mustard bedazzled dusty brick. <laughs> That, that oh, I see. Oh, oh, hang on. You're going to go Dusty Brick instead of the truth, which is pumpkin? Yeah, it's pumpkin. It's a, no, it's, it's not pumpkin. It's too pie. dark That's pumpkin. <laughs> it's, it's Dusty Brick. Um, that jacket looks like something that, like, the older women in my family would have worn in the 90s. Yeah, Matthew, you're a jacket apologist. That is that is not burnt sienna. That's that's baby sick. Um, I'm saying it's papaya. I don't Anthony, know. Exactly. Anthony, isn't it the same chunky sweater she wears in the opening of Where the Wild Things Are? I don't think so. I remember that sweater being nice. This one has like a four. It's too big. I have this. I'm working on this uh, essay right now. It's about the turtlenecks of season four, how Forrest and Buffy are (laughs) in a competition with each other to wear the ugliest (laughs) turtleneck. And I feel (laughs) I feel like this outfit is a deconstruction of the pumpkin colored turtleneck that Forrest wore in Where the Wild Things Are. And they do have. They do have a turtleneck off in their final battle with Adam here, where they both show up in hideous... Oh, no, wait, is he wearing his camo stuff? Yeah, he he's is. wearing his camo stuff. Ah, damn it. My essay just fell apart. <laughs> Hang on, isn't it, isn't it a camo turtleneck, though, from memory? It's no. that standard initiative, looks kind of military, but is actually just, like, a comfy sweater yeah, with, like, yeah. pads. <laughs> Shoulder pads, yeah. Because he always wears either gray or dark green. Um, I can say that as someone who studied what he wears in season four to make the fucking Riley for the cover art. 
just want to say that this show takes place. First of all, this this show takes place in Southern California, and it's May, and she's wearing yeah. this thick ass cow like turtleneck sweater. I saw some requires a jacket, like wow. yeah, and a jacket. I'm like, it is May in Southern California, girl. <laughs> Where are you going? Someone tweeted how River. I think was it, it might have been one of you guys actually. Someone tweeted like how Riverdale took up the like mantle of what Buffy always had where you never knew what the hell the weather was because everyone yeah. wearing completely different outfits for seasons. It changes season to season, yeah. yeah. Although I guess in this case, they would have been filming in January, right? So that they could release in May. Yeah. Uh, which might but also January in Southern California. Like, you could still not wear a sweater. <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, that's no excuse. There's, the, there's a soap opera in Australia called Neighbours that films at opposite ends of the year, which means they're all in the pool because it's Australia in summer. Uh, uh, it, they're in the pool filming for summer scenes, but it's the middle of winter, so they often have to sit in the pool sucking on ice cubes so that when they speak, steam doesn't come out. Wow. Yeah. So if, if Australian <laughs> actors on shitty soap operas can do it, then so can the actors in Buffy. <laughs> Take that turtleneck sweater thing off. Also, as someone who has occasionally crocheted, that thing must have taken seven years to make. Buffy's? Yeah. Willow's, Willow's, I'm sure Willow's. it was made by a machine. Probably, it probably was, but the, <laughs> one of my first thoughts, I don't crochet well. I crochet slowly and poorly. And all I could think of was, oh, I could never do that. That would take me ages. <laughs> These are the I don't thoughts know. I have when I watch Buffy. <laughs> um, so, Matthew, where are we now? I don't even, I'm looking at my notes. I'm um, like, uh... We're going over to the, speaking of sweaters, then there's uh, oh, right. Xander's sweater with the circle on it. The circle sweater. I kind of liked it till I saw oh, the I really circle. Like that one. I love the circle sweater. I think that Xander's little geometric moment this season and his sweater moment and his collars are great. And um, so, Z- and so Spike, uh, Xander and Anya bring Spike the clothes and we find out that Spike can't even hold a gun, a fake gun to Xander's head. Right, which is an odd beat that will later be contradicted because that means that the chip works on intention here. Yes. But yeah. later it seems to know when you're unintentionally endangering someone, which I don't even understand how it could do that. <laughs> but in later seasons, it's somehow like Spike can't even like accidentally hurt somebody, which is bizarre. Um, but Xander is delivering laundry for the second time this episode, which he notes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and we also learned that he has been fired from a Starbucks and a phone sex line, which I wish we had learned more about, because I want to know what that was like. Right, they, <laughs> I feel like they put Xander in these, like, because isn't it, yeah, it's the season premiere of this season, where he's like, he had to strip, and but it's just like, right. and we're never talking about that again, and then they never do. Um, right, yeah. Xander's life is interestingly queer in its offstage sections. But... Yes, well, I feel like <laughs> Xander's one of those, like, so hyper- heterosexual that he's like also maybe a little bit queer right he did say he wanted to sleep with riley too right? yeah when he's yeah and in season seven he talks about scott bacula being really handsome on enterprise right. him and like andrew both lament how handsome he is um but um i mean like <laughs> anthony i feel like you and i both have a lot of those type of straight guys in our life right like i i sure do but it also <laughs> is like the energy that this scene turns on right is like spikes immediately making these homoerotic jokes about the military that's what giles is laughing about when he hears fort dicks later <laughs> right like xander's emasculation also has this element of homoeroticism in it at all yeah. times right well i mean oh, um, yeah. in my notes i literally put so riley when when spike talks about oh you're delivering clothes now um anya says he did riley yesterday 
And my ears immediately <laughs> perked up to all the slash fiction I had read about, like specifically <laughs> season four, because there are a lot of men in season four. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's almost like Anya. Anya's really good, and I mean, it's Emma Caulfield's delivery. Anya's so good at like a side roast. Like, she roasts you, but then keeps going, <laughs> and she doesn't even like care or realize that she's roasting you. Yeah, which she does later when Giles says, oh no, is in the previous episode where Giles is finally turns on her and is like, you know what, Anya, I'm sick of this. And then Oz is at the door and it interrupts. Yeah, yeah. Someone <laughs> confronting Anya about it. <laughs> and uh, so then, Z- so Spike tells them about, you know, and I mean, this actually, in, I mean, every way, these two episodes are predecessor to Restless, but almost everything Spike kind of touches upon, Spike is also incredibly perceptive for these people that he barely likes and doesn't quite hang out with as often as he will later on. But right. he picks up on all their insecurities and he knows exactly what to say to them to make them... Well, what? he is a poet, so <laughs> he knows these things. <laughs> He's very sensitive to these things. Um, Spike and Xander both have that thing where it's like, they have that like, they used to be chubby kids kind of vibes where it's like, they're... they're pretending to be something else now um but they have that sensitivity to them <laughs> yeah <laughs> we but also uh, spike and xander both have that like they're insecure about their masculinity because there's a queerness aspect to them yes. like they yeah, share yeah. that i mean like spike's obsession with his mother and like his spike. doting on her and all that like that's a very like queer narrative that the show doesn't ever really like go all the way there with I mean, it kind of does <laughs> in season seven. Like they oh, almost... it does in seven, yeah. But <laughs> actually, no. The show chooses to kind of go oddly incesty heterosexual with it, rather than queer. Right, and like even in the mechanic, I mean, you don't have to be that Freudian. Even in the mechanics of the scene, like he tries to point a gun at somebody and can't, and immediately starts undermining their masculinity. Right, like that's ah. that's the choreography <laughs> of the scene here. And I love there's the similarities, the parallels is. Uh, even as simple as uh, they're both hin- they're both hamstrung by a disability, uh, Spike's being his chip and Xander's just being that he's human and doesn't have any special powers. And they both want desperately to be in the fray. They want to be the head honcho, the most powerful, but they can't. Yes. Right. And, Which is and, the- and, and, and they're both kind of... And, and the only, like, Spike... And, and so the only way they know how to get to each other is Xander can only talk about Spike's being neutered by the chip. And then Spike comes back and is like, well, you're not actually like a man. Like the women in your life laugh at you. Yeah. Wow. I yeah. think that that, sound, that sounds to me like, I think Chris just like the seduction of Adam, right? Like his name is Adam because he's Frankenstein, but it's also because he's like the original man, right? Like he is masculinity triumphant. And the thing he offers you is that he can make you whole, right? Like, he can take Spike's chip away. He is the military-industrial complex that might save Xander. And when he converts Forrest, Forrest says, he's taken away my doubts. So, like, Adam is, like, this figure of, like, well, what if you... what if toxic masculinity was, like, a person, right? <laughs> what if you <laughs> could make all the promises that masculinity promised you come true? Um so I get, it's nice that we have all these men here who are, like, grappling with that. That's kind of one of the things season... As much as season four is interested in Riley Rabbit, like that's the problem of season four and its, like, strength. is like, it has nothing to do with Buffy, really, because it is about men being seduced by toxic masculinity, and Buffy just has to deal with that as a force, right? 
Yeah. yeah, and and I think I mean we'll get I think we really can talk about what Buffy and I mean Buffy the show Buffy with single quotes around it what Buffy um believes the answer to toxic toxic masculinity is in the way that she defeats Adam. Mm-hmm. And I think we can get mm-hmm. to that next episode. But also, if you want to, uh, uh, speaking of like Adam and uh, Forrest and Riley, if you want to break from this toxic masculinity, just pop on over to the Magicians, where Forrest is being delightfully bisexual at all times. <laughs> right, oh, really? Uh, yeah, hot tip. I'm, I just started the, the. I was about to say the Musicians. <laughs> Very different show. Oh, really? So yes. oh, that's interesting. That show I'm is surprised. so wonderfully queer. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm surprised to hear that that actor is maybe maybe it's not surprising that he's willing to go there. I mean, the next scene, if we're done with the Xander and Spike thing, is yeah, we are. is the scene where Buffy and Forrest have their sort of last conversation. She'll never speak mm-hmm. to him again, um, and it becomes it puts all this like on the surface because this is Forrest's real exit as a person, and it right. becomes a conversation about like no girls allowed, right? Like the problem with yeah. Buffy is that she put questions in his head, right? Um, which is like the Adam and Eve narrative, right? Like the woman has seduced you away from the thing you were meant to serve, right? Well, I think that also, you know, he talks a lot about family and and how he sees Riley. And like he, there's a lot of different ways in which Riley fits into his life. I think that we've talked a lot about on the show about he, he seeing himself and Riley as a unit, as a dyad, but mm-hmm. then also Riley playing a very central role in um, a kind of system, a patriarchal system that Forrest himself had a place in. And like by Buffy kind of taking that cog out of Forrest's life, like so many structures that Forrest was a part of are falling apart. And so he sees Buffy as so threatening to his personhood and like who he, his own identity. Like he saw himself as part of something that made, that was really important that Buffy is undermining and also the friendship slash relationship that Buffy interrupted. Yeah, yeah. The the family thing is such a weird word. Like it it sounds wrong when he says it. Uh Buffy says like what family the Corleones. You could just as easily have put the Mansons in there, right? Like it is sort of like <laughs> it is um this cult structure is fragmenting because of Buffy. And as usual people blame the same thing happened when Joyce accused like the problem is the slayer. It's like the person who raises the question is not the problem, right? But that's an easy place to place the blame here. Yeah. So Buffy is responsible for the fact that she has made all these people's consciences troubled, right? Yeah. Um and I mean poor I actually I do feel bad for Buffy in this because she has so much going on. She runs into her current boyfriend's like weird kind of ex who's jealous and hates her. She is about to get into a fight with him, and then he's murdered, and it's like, oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's a lot to unpack there for what's going on with her. And it has, the script has to get her, like, safely away, but injured enough that we don't blame her for leaving him behind, and, like, there's a lot of work it has to do. Like, she has to, she basically spends, like, 20 minutes doing a chaplain fall down a ravine. (laughs) 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 I mean, yeah. I don't. Th- I don't think it fully pulls off that task either. Because I, yeah, that that explains why she trips down the hill and hits her head on a rock. But I don't think because watching it, I was like, okay, that's a long fall for a woman who goes through so much more than that. But oh no, just that little rock did you? Okay, fair enough. Yeah, but yeah. I also think that she just got blasted by a taser. Yeah, the episode, this whole the whole season has a problem. One of the problems with Adam is that. 
it is the season is visibly nervous about putting Buffy and Adam in the same space because it can't decide what his threat is as like physically, like how much damage can he do? How can he do it? Like even in the finale, this the next half of this, it has to give him that gun arm because it's like all he really Mm -hmm. has is that pokey stick. And it's like we keep (laughs) hearing about what a threat he is, but it's like he's just really strong. And like, how do you manifest that without? pulling Buffy's arms off, which is what Willow well, isn't, said going to happen. Well, isn't that also kind of a symptom or actually a, an embodiment of toxic masculinity that it like looks a lot more threatening than it is and all it has is a pokey <laughs> stick? Yeah. <laughs> Again, going super Freudian, Adam's weapons are a pokey stick and a, a big overcompensatory gun, right? <laughs> and mind games. Yes, yeah. His, uh, his little dial-up modem in his head. <laughs> and a floppy disk. And in his chest, which was delightful to look at at all times. Um, and long-ass nails. Jesus. Yeah. Which yeah, Forrest I, also gets. He yeah. also has those really long... Boy, what are you doing with those nails? Like, There's a lot of um, phallic... Like, Spike beats Forrest by putting out a cigarette in his eye. Like, there's a lot of phallic imagery coalescing around these two. Every time I see Adam, I keep thinking, especially this time, I think that whoever conceived of this sort of Adam plot had doom on their minds. Um, they used the phrase cyber demon, which felt to me very specifically doomish. But like, there's obviously a lot of Matrix stuff happening. Like when Willow is hacking the disc, it's clearly inspired by the Matrix and then the bullets stopping in the second half. Anthony, but I think don't they were thinking, step on my notes. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. like, well, so I have a vivid next- sense memory of installing doom with all my floppy disks. <laughs> so it's like a six disc installation. The... The next thing that we get is Spike um, picking up on Will- to, Willow and Tara is, is, is talking to Willow, and I. It was really interesting because Spike does not know about Willow and Tara, and the show tells us that he intuits a relationship between them because Tara is stroking Willow's hair, and I was thinking about that and how that historically would not be enough to signify a lesbian relationship between two women and only (laughs) in this moment in history would that be like the oh they're like i mean even i I feel like we're still talking about 18 year old girls like women and girls in our society are very affectionate with each other in general and it's very interesting that he intuits an entire lesbian relationship between them from the hair thing even though it is done very lovingly it's very interesting that he goes there Especially well, when he is from 200 years ago where women openly like kissed each other and stuff like that because there wasn't the threat of queerness. Like Historically, women have actually been allowed to be very affectionate with each other because it was never even dreamed that they would be queer. It was So like women had the space to be affectionate with each other. And he comes from that milieu. Oh, really? I almost read him the opposite way. I feel like... Especially when we get Spike's background, I feel like we're supposed to read a sort of Dorian Gray kind of energy to him. He's like this young, beautiful man who gets his heart broken and then lives forever. Um, I think he has some queer out. Like, we know that at least once he and Angel slept together, right? Like, we yeah. find that out well, in a second. Well, that's the thing. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's interesting to me that he jumps right to, oh, they must be in an exclusive relationship with each other. And that's what I'm going to go into, that he doesn't allow... The re- it, that's what I'm saying is that I agree with you is that he should actually have a bigger mind about just like not seeing two women stroke each other's hair and be like, oh, oh they must oh, be I see. they must be going steady. But I, I think, well, I think that 
it's insulting even if they're not going steady. Like for me, he picks up on intimacy and he still does he, he still does code it as the Wiccan Wicca. stuff. Yeah. Right. Well, um, that, I mean, he's clearly he's cuz he's double talking. Right, exactly. But I'm saying like for me that's why that works because I could see that he picks up on intimacy. Maybe he's not positive, but he knows there's some kind of intimacy between the two of them. He really he know he knows because that's common knowledge that Willow is becoming, you know, like delving into magics. So I feel like the double speak. So yeah, so this is like what I struggle with a lot when we talk about this season is like um, the spells as sex. Like I always saw it as they're doing spells, but like also they're fucking. But mm. as almost every guest, and I think you've agreed too, Matthew. Like you, like it's supposed to be seen they're just doing spells and they haven't been fucking this whole time. Um, no, we've been saying that the spells are the intimacy. Right, but that like, that's it. There's after no, the like, spell, they don't have yeah. sex with each other. That the spell is the intimacy. So I always took it like they did a spell and they fucked. Like, then they, like, immediately, like, furiously had, you know, wonderful sex afterwards um, because they were, like, super worked up. But, I don't know, I, I feel like I can buy it because Spike picks up on an intimacy. He knows that she's a witch, so he double speaks, but he double speaks on purpose so that way it's like a blanket offense. Mm, mm-hmm. So Willow could be offended at either what are, what you're getting at or what he's just actually specifically saying. Right. Um, I don't know. That's that's where I come from with that. That's what I think as well. It lo- see, strikes me as like a he's hedging his bets. He's just yeah. casting a wide net yeah. and then Willow interprets her own right. brand of offense. Because her he, own anxieties he too. Yeah. To, he has to hope that he's correct in intuiting right, yeah. that willow and tara are together and then he also has to hope that he's correct that buffy knows about it and freaked out about it and then he and that and and that he's able to play on that you know he has to he he ends up taking the correct shot but he's taking like a shot from from whatever the three whatever i don't know he's taking (laughs) right (laughs) insert sports metaphor here uh <laughs> um, well, even if he doesn't get Buffy's anxiety right, which he does, um, but I like that actually one cool thing about what he's intuited here is he's got Tara's anxiety right too. Yeah. Because yeah. he says, well, they're saying that it's just a phase and that you're just being trendy. And that is an anxiety that basically started with Tara last episode, right? In New Moon Rising. Yeah. Tara's first we sort of get the first glimmer of Tara's sense that this might be something Willow uh, leaves her for. This is something Willow passes through. That's her. That's their terrible last fight right before Tara gets her mind taken by Glory, right? That, totally, that, yeah. That Willow, Willow says that, you're worried I'm going to go back to Boys Town. I think she is the phrase she uses. She says she um, didn't establish her lesbo street cred <laughs> right. before, before right. the relationship. So it's like, he even if even if he doesn't have the fracture between Buffy and Willow right, he can push Willow. He can get Willow to overcorrect by not doing the hacking by going to like enforce that she is into the Wicca thing. Um, also, in like the arc of the season, like even if you're not reading Tara and Willow as having sex, they are definitely have sex. I think at the end of New Moon Rising with the blackout when Tara blows out the candle because Willow says, "I'm going to prove it to you now," and Tara says now, and then it's like now they then they do the blowout, and it's like it would be hard to imagine she like unrolls her magic bag there, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> that to me reads as like there is a sex scene implied as much as they can imply it there, and that's why Willow, 
That's why Terrence is extinct. That that's supposed to be implied as the first... Uh, well, no, no, the first time they have sex is supposed to be implied when her smell is all over Tara. When oh, when that's Oz right. Yes. Smells her. Well, that's also a question then. Like, can Spike smell... How, how keen is Spike's sense of smell compared to Oz's, right? Right. right. Do vampires have a keen sense of smell, smell in this universe? I can't even remember. <laughs> so after yes. that... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah. After that, we go to Riley and Angel's rumble in the back alleys. <laughs> I I was just like, are they going to fuck? Like, what? It felt like, <laughs> it really felt like a setup to a gay porn. These two, like, doofy bros run into each other and immediately start, like, doing a dick measuring contest and then fight. And it's like, okay, now kiss. This is the part where you kiss. Right. Because it seems to come uh, out of nowhere. <laughs> how does Angel know who he is? Right. Is that's a... He says he sees him and he says Riley Finn. How did he know that that was Riley Finn? Like, have they met? I don't remember. No, they haven't. Yeah, Buffy no. doesn't have an iPhone. She can't just show her. Yeah. Her <laughs> like, maybe, okay, I... so maybe the sense of smell thing is real and Angel can just smell. Oh, smell. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I talked about this last time, the like the way all all love triangles eventually have like a homoerotic dimension to them. Yeah. Um, right. We talked about the the Twilight thing last time. It was this episode <laughs> where I was like, oh, you know what tr- love triangle this is? This is Betty and Veronica, right? Like, Riley is the Betty and, <laughs> and Angel is the Veronica. And it's like the goody two-shoes versus the, you know, the, like, cool, what does he call him? Um, billowy coat, king of pain. Like, <laughs> and it does, I mean, I actually think the fight is really well choreographed, but it's yeah. also, it has this, it has this energy. Be- they actually have more chemistry, I think, than... Than, than Riley and Buffy do. <laughs> you know what's interesting is that Buffy goes from billowy coat king of pain to goody two-shoes to billowy coat king of pain who wants to be a goody two-shoes. Yes. <laughs> Matthew, oh. that's like really... <laughs> yeah, there's a way that Spike is just kind of a burlesque of Angel. Um, Matthew, I love when you use that big sexy brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... I yeah, my notes on this scene are just like, when are they gonna fuck? Are they gonna kiss? Is well, I mean, we don't have to talk about the physical fight because nothing yeah. really happens. We can then go to like the actual meat scene. But, so I feel so, and I hate to defend anyone's like annoying jealousy, but I think Riley's pretty. Like, I don't think any of it, his jealousies are out of line here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the episode actually does a good job of like maintaining the farce aspect. Like it, it walked that line with Xander explaining how the curse works just vaguely enough that it makes sense that Riley would think, A, this person who's acting like a dick is now evil. B, they must have fucked, right? (laughs) That does a good job of selling. And Mark Lucas does a good job of like, I wonder what could have happened, you know, before the fight. And especially because we already know she hasn't been completely honest with him. Right, And he found that out. So it's like, I don't think he's that crazy in, like, he's, he's being, I mean, both men are being very... I mean, as Buffy says, which I love, that she points out um, the testosterone. And... testosterone. Well, she uses, <laughs> yeah, she says testosterone poisoning. poisoning. She invented the toxic masculinity. <laughs> but, like, she is the first one who said testosterone poisoning. Um, uh, and it immediately becomes, like, juvenile, right? Like, he started it, is what Angel says. Which, yeah. Which is, uh, Angel does it again in the last, is it the, yeah, the beginning of the last episode of Buffy, when... He's like, Spike has a soul now. I I did it first. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate that they keep him... Because Angel's pretty just broody. And, like, I, I actually love Angel, the show. But I think he's one of the lesser interesting characters. 
he works well with who's around him. That's why him and Cordelia worked for me because she was so dynamic and she worked so well as a foil to him. And I think he doesn't always get to show him being like petty. And I do like mm-hmm. when they get to show that because normally, normally what? it's just him being, you know, broody. So I, I think that I, I, I'm not totally, and you know, I've made a, career at this point of excusing (laughs) Riley for a lot of things but I actually don't want to excuse Riley's immaturity in the moment because I feel like the amount of wheels that had to turn in his head like there were things that he weren't told but he's not being very forgiving of Buffy and then also I feel like for someone who is struggling so much with about about demons like knowing that there are like you know there are vampires and demons and that they would cl- they would gladly kill him if they had the chance and angel just kinds of walks away and doesn't kill him mm-hmm. to think that angel is evil is a weird step mm-hmm. i don't know like you know that it is a, a demon instinct to kill and angel actually lets you breathe and l- leaves you alone and and i don't know I, that's a little weird to me but one of the things that that i when i watched these scenes together it almost um plays out to me like a stage play especially like they're in the room and then they're in the hallway and buffy is exhibiting so much emotional maturity in these two scenes i mean she's able to cop to the things that she did in la but then she also kind of gives both angel and riley a talk about a very emotionally mature talk about um, the ways that they're dealing with her that are very hurtful and she also asks angel to excuse riley's immaturity like she actually is in on the fact that riley has not grown up and doesn't know about the world and Mm -hmm. at one point when she's talking to angel she kind of gestures with her eyes over to the room where riley is and kind of gives this look like i know what you think (laughs) about how naive he is Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna ask you to like not hold that against my new relationship and like allow me to explore it's a it's i think that buffy is like She's 18 years old and she's like having this emotional range that I cannot believe that she has. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I and I think it's a, also a credit to Sam Rachel Geller's acting. I mean, I it's such a throwaway spot in the whole like that whole scene, but her like the eyes she gives him, we understand what she means. Angel the character understands what Buffy means just in like her the way she moves her eyes. Um, right. And well, I, she, and, and she I mean, knows and I mean, I that's, I think that's why I do love Angel and Buffy together this way. Like, I don't, mm. I agree with you, Matthew. I don't think they were like, they should have ended up together. I don't think there ever should have been that. But I love them as ex-lovers who completely 100% understand each other. And, you know, I that's how I view them. I view them as like, they love each other, but they aren't in love with each other anymore. And they mm-hmm. just 100% understand each other. Um, and that's... It's, it's just, yeah, it's just interesting from Buffy's thing. Like she has to say, like, she's basically saying to Angel, like, I know what Riley and I have is not as intense as what we had. I know that Riley is not as like strong as you are. I know that Riley doesn't know as he's not as smart as you are. He doesn't know as much about the world. And she really is like stepping up for him and being like, you have to excuse Riley, but this is like who I've chosen right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, one of the neat things this scene and it like i said earlier like it is weird how one of the major beats of season four lives in angel um but one of the neat things this scene dramatizes is the healthy version of what the season is about sort of like well what happens when you go off to high you go off to university and grow apart and it's like 
Angel and Buffy are actually modeling the healthy version of that. Like you're not in each other's lives anymore and you kind of have to learn how to live with that. And that in a weird way, the same way uh, Willow had to say to Oz, like someday I'll turn a corner in Istanbul and I'll be old and I run into you and it's fine. Like you're always with me, but our lives are not each other's lives anymore. Um, And I like that there's a, a way to think about that that isn't demonized here, that like you're allowed to grow apart in a way that yes. the yeah. show sort of otherwise says is a bad thing at the end of the season. Um, weirdly, the other beat, though, here is that Buffy knows she has to tell Riley that his best friend is dead during all these scenes. Right? right? Like, <laughs> she has watched him die and has come back to this juvenile fight. So there is something in that, too, this, like, odd, like, gentleness and willing to forgive is also because she has really bad news <laughs> to deliver after yeah. all this. <laughs> I think the other another part of this scene I think was touched on before when she apologizes for her behavior in LA. I really appreciated that from a storytelling uh, standpoint because in that episode of Angel, she was such a brat. Like she was yeah, so yeah. aggressive. And although there were mitigating circumstances, as you said, you know, the last time she saw Faith, uh, she had slept with Riley and it completely fucked her life up. But in the in the episode of Angel, the whole time she is antagonistic and petty uh mm-hmm. and it made me watching even the first time and then again recently made me kind of angry like oh this is so out of character so to put that one line apology in um was great because it allowed them to tell that story they told an angel but then bring buffy back to a more reasonable heroic place yeah it also lets you see the different registers the shows are working in right like yeah. buffy is always going to be more about even though this season is negotiating a bit more stays uh, shades of gray Buffy is the world where there is good and there is bad. Angel is the world that is all in the gray, right? Like, yeah. And yep. when you put Buffy into that gray world, she comes off as this, like, dangerous um, uh, figure of vengeance, right? Like, that's what a Slayer <laughs> looks like. Yeah. That's what a Slayer looks like in this world of gray, right? She's dangerous. She's an antagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... Also, we don't often get that on shows, even on this show particularly, we don't often get a call back to something someone did wrong and them just flat out saying, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Like, right. you know, Xander leaves Anya at the fucking altar and he never just says, I'm sorry. Like yeah. when they talk about it, he's like, well, and kind of tries to explain <laughs> it away. And, you know, when when Buffy and Xander and Willow finally have the talk about Xander, you told me Willow said Go kick his ass. You didn't tell yep. me Willow was reinstalling him. No one apologizes. This, <laughs> this is a show that ran for seven years, 22 episodes a season, 80% of which were just people didn't communicate properly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and to ha- so to have some clear communication is like, wow. And I think it does make we- sense that Buffy would be one of the few characters. I feel like maybe Willow, I mean, depending, I know some people aren't the, like, think she's more selfish, but I think they're two of the characters that would apologize. Like, mm-hmm. Xander, it makes sense that he wouldn't apologize. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing about this thing, I, I keep delving into the minutiae of storytelling, but um, I, earlier in the scene when Angel showed up at the dorm, the fact that he has to ask to be let in and then they, they linger on that for a bit, I love how intricately the invitations are handled in every scene throughout the entire series and they make them into really powerful emotional moments. Yeah. Mm. 
Like in season and I really five, appreciate we get that, that spike. Yeah. Well, even just countering that with the previous episode in New Moon Rising, Willow invites Oz in, and instead they go for a walk. He doesn't come in till later. Like even when it's not a vampire, they're thinking about when you're allowed across the threshold <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that is neat. Yeah. So she has to tell Riley that Forrest is dead. Riley says he has to go. He leaves. Um, I do, you know, like I said, I think these two episodes make me do a good job of making me feel compassion for Riley at the very least, if not feeling guilty for or feeling bad for him. Um, you know, he just had this big rumble with his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend who he feels constantly like he's in the shadow of. And also your best friend was murdered. You know, that's a lot for a drugged up army guy to deal with, for anyone to deal with. So he runs off, but I don't think we actually see him. Do we see him go anywhere, or is it not till the end when he's... No. Okay. My so, sense is that he's... We're supposed to understand... This might be an acting thing, but my sense is that his chip is activated in this scene. Isn't that not how we're supposed to read it? That when he says, I have to go, it's because Adam has switched him on, and now he has to go to the initiative? I thought that's what was happening. Oh. That he, like... Yeah, I thought he was. What... I thought, thought he was having a breakdown, and then like his emotions turn off, and he's yeah, like, "I gotta exactly go." Exactly what happened? Oh, okay. oh no, I did not get that at all. But that makes sense. <laughs> that does make sense. Yeah, I, I read it as like he wanted to go check in with the initiative to find out what happened, and then somewhere along the line got sidetracked because Adam did the thing with the chip. Um, but okay, oh, yeah, I think it's. I think it's not clear acting wise <laughs> but i do think that that is what we're supposed to understand and i think that this is the culmination of the season their big fight in giles's apartment i i even though i mean and spike completely explains it when he says it's the yoko factor and he's like oh well you know people blamed yoko but really they were just growing apart and growing up and that's 100 percent what's going on here like spike uses some lies to get there, but the fights were all kind of there. I mean, especially this time, how many times have I said on the podcast how annoyed I was with Buffy because she was being such a bad friend and not, like, she only had eyes for Riley and, you know, like, where the wild things are. They're at that fucking party and she's not listening to her friends and just staring at Riley. Um, When they're in the cafeteria and Willow's talking to her and she's barely acknowledging Willow and then gets mad at Riley getting, I think, like, a croissant or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I do. I, I hate the fight cause I hate to see my babies fight, but <laughs> it makes sense. And I, I do think it's one of the better like payoffs of season four. Like it, it makes sense. Um, and I mean, like you said, Anthony, there is a mature adult way where it's like, Oh, we did drift apart, but we still care about each other, but we drifted. Mm-hmm. This group clearly can't have that. Like, they can't function with that happening. It's, yeah. I feel like with them, it's either all or nothing. Which, you yeah, know, it, sometimes that is a thing. Um, I do find it... it and there, it's good about making everyone have... It's a it's a really well-written fight. I like it a lot. Um, because everyone kind of makes a point, but everyone is also kind of a monster. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yes. the, the great... I like the way... I think this season makes an interesting choice that I... I like to think about a lot, which is that Buffy doesn't handle Willow's coming out perfectly. 
she never when she does it in new moon new moon rising there's clearly a moment where she freaks out um she never does like the hug and i love you kind of thing and here she says something really weird too where she's like if i was any more open-minded about the choices you two make my brain would fall out or something and it's like what choices are you talking about with willow like are you like complaining about her lifestyle here like what exactly am i supposed to infer there that like ramps up to the end of the fight where she's like she says the terrible thing about how the chosen one there's no prophecies about the chosen one and her friends um but everyone everyone's kind of terrible everyone's really insulting and they all kind of make good points <laughs> i like that a lot yes, xander yeah, finds out absolutely. in the middle like Poor Xander, like, this is the most he gets of a coming out from Willow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I actually, you know, I have to say, I, in this episode and the next one, I feel a little bad for Xander because they almost, like, I mean, and, I mean, this is clear from the, like, the beginning of the show that Buffy and Willow have a better bond, but Xander and Willow grew up together and had been best friends since they were, like, little kids. So it almost feels unfair to Xander that with these, like, extreme important friend conversations they're having they're totally leaving xander out so much so that willow mentions having a girlfriend in passing in a fight in front of someone she hadn't even come out to who's supposed to also be her best friend yeah Um, and like i I think that in these two episodes they kind of i feel like this is the first time for sure that willow and buffy are best friends now and xander is like the other one xander's in the uncomfortable position where like willow is his best friend but he is not her best yeah. friend. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the line? Also... I was going to quote the good place. What does she say about Taylor Swift? Christopher, I feel like you know that line. Oh, you're talking about Tahani? Yeah. <laughs> and her best friend and my best friend and my other best friend who isn't her best friend. Yeah. yeah. It's and that I, situation. I think Kristen Bell's delivery of, she said she's Taylor Swift's best friend, but Taylor Swift isn't her best friend. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just needed to throw that in there. Matthew, I'm sorry uh, I interrupted you. I don't even know if I remember what I was going to say, but I, um, yeah, I don't. I, I love the fight. I mean, Anthony, you hit all my notes because they're all kind of wrong, but they're all kind of right. Everyone's kind of being a dickhead, but also making points. Um, Giles is incredibly hilariously drunk. I, I do <laughs> appreciate And belligerent. <laughs> my note was about uh, Willow's coming out during the fight and how I felt like that was one of the moments where it was like, gay people writing a queer experience because I feel like when you're navigating coming out, you're so meticulous about who you have and have not come out to yet mm-hmm. that I feel like Willow wouldn't just blurt out talking about her girlfriend in the room if she weren't out to certain people yet. Yeah. I do think one of the weird, one of the weird things I wish we had a better sense of is how, how does Willow deal with her? Like we don't have a sense of her personal processing of her queerness. Like, yeah. I don't know how how her, how did she come out to her mom? How did she, like, is she bothered by it? Is she just figuring it out? Does she have reservations that we don't know about? Like, is she more comfortable with it than I think I was? You know, it's, like, not clear to me. And, like, saying it in passing like this is a weird... It's an interesting choice because sometimes that happens that way. But, like, Giles is literally not even in frame. Like, he's just, like, he yells bloody hell from the loft. And it's, like... <laughs> And all the only sense of processing we'll ever get is in the next episode where he opens the door in the bathrobe and is like staring uncomfortably but kindly at Tara. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's all we get. Like we don't really get. I mean, obviously Giles is going to be cool with it, but it's never processed explicitly. Yeah, I do. I do wish we had gotten that. Like I, I understand, and I mean, you're right. This is they're very stressing that Buffy and Willow are the best friends. Um, and Giles, I mean, he's the dad, so he's not like a best friend. He's the dad. <laughs> 
Um, so he like doesn't quite count. And Xander is like the, oh, you're my best friends, but I'm not yours. I do wish, you know, because then in Buffy vs. Dracula, him and Willow have like a stupid nonsense conversation where he's like, oh, if you want to tell me what you and Tara are doing. Um, we never get, I would have liked, even even though I know they're trying to stress to us that Buffy and Willow are the best friends, I would have liked seeing Xander and Willow having that talk. Maybe he's like, hey, why didn't you tell me? You know, mm. my one of my best friends... Um, she was one of the last of my group and she's like one of the people I'm only people I'm still friends with from that, you know, back then she Mm -hmm. was one of the last people I told. And she, I remember telling her on the beach, she's one of our guests that has been on a few times, Kimberly Ann. And I remember her being like, why didn't, well, who knew? And I told her, I was like, well, kind of everyone. And she was just like genuinely like, why wouldn't you have told me before you told these people? And it's just, sometimes it's easier just to tell people you don't know as well. But I would have liked, I would have liked that conversation with her and Xander. I think that would have been a great right. moment. Love Simon does that actually, yes, not yes. to spoil anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the the best friend is sometimes the hardest person to come out to. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it would have been easy. It, that could have been a conversation. It would have been nice at yes. some point to have had Xander and Willow have a conversation about it. But whatever. Because I, they I mean, do sort of lean on the like he is a straight boy, right? Like even Restless will have that moment where he's like, sometimes they I think about them doing a spell and then I do yeah. a spell by myself. Like there is sort of like a goofiness about how he's like titillated by their relationship yeah. um, that it leans on. Uh, also, there's the great cutaway to Tara and uh, yeah. Anya in the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> discussing the tile, which is beautiful tile. <laughs> I, I think that's such a good, it, it's so good because it's just like, hmm, you know, and Tara's more anxious about it, which I mean, is very perfect in character for both of them. Tara's anxious and nervous. Anya's literally just staring at the floor and doesn't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) And Tara's just like making conversation. Anya doesn't need to make small talk. She's like, yeah, I love the tiles, but doesn't care. She's sitting on the toilet too. Like that's very Anya choice. Like Tara would never sit on the toilet like comfortably. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's, I, those are like little character moments that I always love because, you know, Anya and Tara don't have anything to do. And they don't want to be there for this fight because I mean, why would they? And oh. um, but it's so good of the of the show yes. to check in on them. Yes, and especially because we don't really get them. I mean, even though it's not really the finale in the like culmination of the big fight, the next episode we don't really see either of them that much. Oh, that's right. Are they even in the next? Yeah, they, they are. are. They are, but not. I mean, they don't go to the initiative with everyone, which seems like they should have brought everyone they knew, but. You know, whatever. We'll get there when we get there. Um, so... I, I mean, I also think that they... Because Tara explains... I mean, Willow explains that Tara didn't feel welcome. And I also think that, like, Anya is not one to put her butt on the line for the Scoobies yet. She barely put <laughs> yeah. line for anyone. <laughs> I don't even remember seeing them leave the fight. Like, suddenly they're just gone. <laughs> well, I think it's... the episode. This episode ends with Buffy walking out. And then the next episode, they're already elsewhere no but i mean like when the scoobies are fighting in the scene do we see anya yes. and tara exit at any point in the i don't back, in the background you see <laughs> oh, really? yeah i've never clocked it i need to watch it again it's like as soon as there's the like argument starts i think right after giles is like mm. what is what okay. does he say like too honest or whatever i think you see them walk behind him oh okay <laughs> um i also want to give nicholas brendan credit i think his acting in the the delivery of I'm going to read, just read the line. Since you two went off to college and forgot about me and just left me in the basement to Tara's your girlfriend. Like, <laughs> yeah. I I think the reading of that is really great. Um, and it's some, um, like, I feel like that's, 
the Xander, the type of Xander shtick that I always like is when mm. he's catching up and he's like, what? That's, that's the Xander I enjoy more. Yeah. He's good at not telegraphing his turns, like yeah. in dialogue. Some of them <laughs> yeah. are not, but he's very good at like actually having it occur to him yeah, <laughs> in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So then Buffy says she's going to go, if she needs help, she'll go to someone she can count on, which I assume is implying Riley. Because then we also cut to Riley walking into Adam's lair and he says, I've been waiting for you in his Adam voice. Um, mm. Yeah, do you, are we, are we at the end, Matthew? I think we're at the end, right? Yep. Yep, all right. Um, so, gentlemen, Anthony, favorite outfit? Favorite outfit. We blew right past it, but I really love <laughs> in that I really hate uh, Willow's crocheted top when she's playing with the cat. <laughs> um, it looks very cozy. And like it probably was never even meant to be a garment. It looks like <laughs> it looks like something my grandmother would have had on a like dining room table. Um, and I hate it, so I love it. So that's my favorite. Uh, Christopher, favorite outfit. Uh, my my favorite outfit is that same outfit of Willow's. Oh, uh, but but not. I hate it, and then I love it. I just love it, and then I love it some more. <laughs> I looked at it. I literally looked at it, and the, like that is. The bright garish colors, an impractical fit, big yep. crocheted nonsense. That is my jam. And so cozy. It like reads so like cozy. part of the I've never noticed that Tara has this beautiful mural in her dorm room. I don't know when she had time to paint it. It looks <laughs> weird. It's like got some like apostles in it. I'm so into it. But it like <laughs> the outfit looks like it came out of that room, you know? Like it just yeah. like reads as this like 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 lesbianism is this cozy fantasy in that scene. <laughs> I love it so much. Favorite outfit? It's like Matthew? wearing a cuddle. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew, well, favorite outfit? The sweater jacket combo. Oh, you do love oh, it. Yeah. So mine was actually Xander's uh, sweater with the weird circle on it. I really like it. Oh, oh yeah. I was into it. Uh, favorite oh, yeah. scene, Christopher? Um, Favorite scene... I'm going to go with Fort Dix, that fight, <laughs> but specifically Fort Dix. Uh, Matthew? Um, you know, I'm going to go with uh, Buffy speaking to Riley and Angel, giving them a talking to in the dorms. All right. Anthony? Ooh, uh, I would have said both those things. I like this time around, I liked the Helter Skelter beat because it made me understand how Adam works better. But I also like Giles singing Freebird. So one of those two. Um, my favorite scene is just the whole fight, um, but particularly Xander's, Tara's your girlfriend? Um, <laughs> so I feel like we'll probably all have around the same thing. What do we think Dawn would have been doing? So I'll tell mine first. I think Dawn would have been in that bathroom with Ani and Tara. That's what I think she would have been doing. And she would have been there for some reason. Giles would have been babysitting her, and she would have ended up in that bathroom, and she would have been talking... Anya and Tara's ear off in the bathroom and wanted to know what was going on. Um, Matthew, what do you think would have Dawn would have been doing? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, 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 yeah, I think, but I think she would have been, she would have wanted to be part of the action. I don't think she would have been in the bathroom. I think that she, or, or she think, she would have wanted to stay because kids don't want to miss out on the fight. Yeah. Um, but I also think that she would have been made to go to the bathroom with them, but she would be listening with like a cup at the door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anthony. 
I I don't know if that can be true because I seem to remember that Dawn doesn't know that Tara is Willow's girlfriend in in the real me because there's a joke that there's a joke that Joyce oh, knows right, and yes. Dawn hasn't put it together yet because she says I wish they would teach me what they do together and her right. mom gets real quiet <laughs> so Dawn can't be there for the fight she can't know yet I don't know when she does find out um, so you'd have to. Unless you'd have to stage manage it weird, because she calls Tara Willow's friend in the real me when we meet her, um, so they can't know. But, but I also I, I don't think there's ever like explicitly a scene where she finds out, right? I don't know. I don't remember now. Well, we'll find out next but, season. We'll run season five. <laughs> yeah, but when she's narrating, when she's reading her diary in the real me, she says yeah. she's talking about how much she likes Tara, and she's like, "Well, Tara's Willow's friend. She's great. We played Thumb Wars or whatever." She can't be there for the fight. Is my point. <laughs> yeah. All right, Christopher. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think she she's at home. She uh, called the dorm to call Buffy, didn't get an answer, and then has been recalling every 30 minutes, yelling <laughs> at her mother. She still hasn't answered yet. It's been another half an hour to try and dob her uh, sister in for being not home. <laughs> um, all right. That's and good. I like that. Yeah, I do like <laughs> that. So now we're going to grade the episode. Matthew, what do you give the episode? Um, I give it a B+. Plus. All right. Uh, Christopher? I I know at the top of this episode I said I didn't like, like the episode, and I still don't, but this talking about it has made me like it more. I'm going to give it a C+. Plus. Oh, I love when that happens. Um, Anthony, how about you? Uh, this is an A- minus for me, and I, I, I mean, it's not like... I would never show it to somebody as, like, high art. It's not doing the work <laughs> that, like, a Hush or a Restless is doing. But it has a lot of machinery to move around, and it has a light touch about it. It's sort of thinking about being, like I said, almost soap opera-ish, almost farcical about it. And I like that it's willing to play. It's confident enough to, like, let have, let's let have Giles have a song. Let's let Riley be funny. So A- minus for me. Moving some furniture around before the finale, but solid work. All right. Um, and I go along with Christopher. My grade was raised literally from us talking about it. I had a B minus. I'm going to go with a B. I think I agree with you, Anthony, that I give it a B, but I don't think it's some Bs <laughs> that some Buffy episodes I would give a B are like way better and way like, you know, like you said, high art episodes. But mm. this is still like doing things. So I give it a B. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to thank follow, you for having us. Of course, if you want to follow our podcast on Twitter, we are at SlayerFestX98. If you want to follow Matthew on Twitter, he is at Matthew Rodriguez, one T, a G, and a Z. If you want to follow Ian, he's on Twitter at IanXCarlos. And uh, Anthony, where can people follow you? Uh, I am uh, Mia Koopa on Twitter. It's M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A. Or you can follow the Devil's Party podcast at patreon.com slash Mia Koopa. And I'm on Twitter at Chrisopotamia. It's like Mesopotamia, but with a Chris. <laughs> or if you feel like a joyously long read, you can go to ChristopherDoesn'tLiveHereAnymore.com. <laughs> yes and they're great long reads um and if you all like our podcast don't forget to subscribe and rate us on itunes we are on soundcloud we are on stitcher and we are working on getting to other places and thank you we'll see you all next week bye Ooh, bye, bye. bye.